It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. I'm excited. It's a Monday morning. Monday mornings have the potential to be one of the most exciting days of your life because it's the beginning, well, at least for us Americans, it's the beginning of something. To the Jews, it starts on Sunday. Isn't that an interesting thought that that's the start of the week uh, to a Jew is, is Sunday? But for us, it's a Monday. It doesn't matter. It's a new beginning. And so just like it says his mercies are new every morning, you could look at it, his mercies are fresh every week, just fresh out of the oven. If you ever have tasted fresh bread you know, out of the oven... Uh, with that, that lump of uh, butter that's like, you know, swiveling on top and then it slides down the side. Uh, it's, it's extra special. And so a lot of people have given Mondays a bad rap, but I think we should switch our mentality. As far as I'm concerned as Christians, every day belongs to Jesus Christ. Every day is the day he has made. And so let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Mondays, I think, since the devil has gone so far out of his way to try and create oppression, depression on this day, I think we should go the opposite direction and do extra rejoicing on Mondays. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, because I don't know that I've said it this semester, but this day has the potential to be the greatest day of your life. Think about that. And there's no reason why it couldn't be the greatest day of your life. And... The God of the universe, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who has done mighty wonders and deeds throughout the ages, still sits enthroned today. And I see no reason why he couldn't make this the greatest day of your life. But the key for us, there's two ways to approach the day. One is to sort of slide back in your seat and to say, eh. The other is to lean forward and move to the edge of your seat with anticipation and expectation. All right? So I want you to consider a little expectation stirring inside of you today, all right? Now, uh, the title, do you guys see that title, The Bulging Left Bicep? I'm not speaking of my uh, bicep uh, when I say that, but uh, it's, a, it's a very unique theme that I'm going to draw out today. This is uh, our third uh, installment in the Muscular Christian series that I'm going through, and uh, I, I really, first of all, I love, if you saw the different themes that I'm about to hit on, I mean, they're like juicy, exciting, at least for me. I mean, maybe it's the way I'm wired. I, I'm wired for the epic. I'm wired for the, uh, the strong, the, the noble, you know, things like that. Like the word like honor just really stirs me. And so I'm a little old-fashioned in some of those regards, but when you get this muscular Christian, even the word muscular gets me stirred up, especially when it's a, it tied in as an adjective to Christian. Most of us, you know, we loving Christian. It's like, oh, that's so sweet. But muscular Christian is an unusual tie of words, and it, it gets me stirred up because that's what I believe we need more of. I remember in Chariots of Fire, remember the main character in Chariots of Fire? Uh, well, you have two. I mean, you have Harold Abrams, and then you have... Eric Little, okay? It's almost like they intended to say Ludi, but they didn't, you know? They, <laughs> and so that movie, you have to recognize that Harold Abrams looks like me, okay? He's, he's one of the characters. He's the character that doesn't, he's sort of earthy, he's fleshly, he's doing it for his own glory, doing it for his own name, and he's like my old man, if we could say it that way. And uh, you have, he looks like my dad when my dad was a certain age. He looks like 
My granddad, if you look at a picture of my granddad when he was 30, looks just like Harold Abrams. I mean, it's weird, okay? So I have this movie uh, where it has two characters. One looks like me, and the other one is called Eric Little. And my name's Eric Ludy, for any of you that don't know. And so, uh, so as a result, my, in, my encounter with this movie is so s- significant, but there's this line in it that the missionaries are sitting around and they're talking about, should Eric run, should he go after the Olympic Games? And should he go for that? You know, should a Christian spend any of their life doing something like that? And one of them says, I think the world is craving, I can't do a Scottish accent if my life depended on it, a muscular Christian. It's like, yeah, that's exactly what we're craving. I'm craving it. Craving a muscular Christian. And guess who it is? Eric Little. See, I think they intended to say Eric Ludi. I think they mispronounced his name. I think if you look at Little and you pronounce it correctly, it's Ludi. Uh, <clears throat> All right, the bulging left bicep. Before I get into this, there's an idea that I want to sort of unpack uh, first, and that is the idea of the peculiarness of Christianity. In other words, when you enter the kingdom of heaven, when you transfer from the first life in Adam to this new life, this second life in Christ, you are born again, you are born into peculiarity. That's a hard word to say. You are born into a realm that doesn't look right when you're wearing these glasses. And so these people turn and they look at the Christian And they say, wow, that is strange. Why would they do that? They don't understand it because it is spiritually discerned. If you are in Adam, you do not understand Christ. You do not understand the things of the Spirit. You do not understand the Word of God. And so you need kingdom mindset, kingdom lenses to be able to see it, to be able to comprehend it. And so what we need to accept as Christians, because a lot of us desire the approval of Adam. We desire the approval of the world that is lost in darkness, and that is where it gets dicey. When you start aiming to get approval and applause from the world, you have to compromise your life in Christ, because Christ is, by very definition, foolishness to those that are in Adam. So as a result, you have to choose. Are you with Adam? Are you looking for Adam's applause? Or are you with Christ and are you looking for his applause? Because what Christ approves or what he applauds is very different. And so there's this innate built-in friction to all of our souls. Because I don't know that there's any of us in here that desire to look like fools. I don't know about you, but when I popped out of my mother's womb, I was very much sensitized to the ideas of what everyone else thought of me. I wanted them to think highly of me. I wanted them to think of me as attractive, as debonair, as witty, athletic. I wanted them to see me in a certain light that would cause me to fit in well with all the other atoms, if you will. And so as a result, the tension of the kingdom of heaven and the draw of the kingdom of heaven into this realm of foolishness. Now, what's interesting is in heaven... Christ is not foolish. It is perfect wisdom. But in the mindset or the lens of Adam, it is. And that's the tension we face, is when we exit Adam and believe in Christ, we are choosing to identify with him. My sister's illustration of this when I was growing up, she gave this, I don't know, this story to me. She's like, Eric, imagine. 
Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's surrounded. He's like encircled by people that are crying out for his death, that are relishing the fact that he's suffering, that hate him, that are mocking him, that are hurling insults at him. And in that theater of shame, of scandal, could you imagine walking up to the foot of the cross and turning and facing all of those that are mocking Christ, sticking your hand up into the air, your finger pointing towards him, and they're like, what are you doing there? You're not with him, are you? And saying, I am with him. Christianity. Right there in front of a mocking world, are we willing, even if our finger be trembling and our knees be knocking, to say, I'm with Jesus. Uh, I had a, I don't know, I was laying in bed last night and I had an invention. And it was, because I don't know if you've ever heard my story of Bourbon Street where it was during Mardi Gras and I had, I think it was the day before Mardi Gras, but it was right at that time of Mardi Gras. And I, had, I was standing with a cross in the middle of Bourbon Street and it was a breakthrough moment in my life. It's a great story. And I, I can't go into it this second, but it's a great story. And I have never felt so alive as when I did the dumbest thing I'd ever done in my life, which was stand next to a huge wooden cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. And there was some elixir that was given to my soul, a joy that was beyond anything I'd ever known up to that point. And I remember thinking, I want to build a cross. I want to carry it with me everywhere I go. Okay, so I, I've seen this guy walking around. He has wheels on a cross, and he's going across the country. I'm like, yeah, you know, I should do that. Uh, and I'm a little jealous of the guy. You know, he, he, he has his whole life built around carrying it. It's a little awkward for me. It's like I have to stick it in the vehicle, drive across town, come in here. It's like I have a cross. Nathan gets points, you know, if, or I lose a point if I'm not here on time, you know, so I can just see me with my cross trying to get up on stage and to talk. So I was thinking of like a mobile cross that's just big enough to be awkward. Okay, so it's like, you know, maybe three and a half feet, and it's like wooden. And so I carry it with me everywhere I go. And I was saying, now that, that would be great. In fact, I'm seriously pondering it. Whether or not I ever do it, I don't know. I've had a lot of great ideas over the years. But it's just awkward enough that wherever you go, people are like, what, what, what are you doing with that? It's like, oh, well, I'm with Jesus. I'm just carrying this to remind myself that I am a fool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But it's just like an interesting idea. It's hard to get this like huge cross around, but hey, something awkward like that. I can imagine I'm trying to get out of the vehicle. I'm like grabbing my cross and taking it out. And just imagine how many conversations you could start with a three-foot cross. I mean, you, you, you would look so weird. Imagine I'm sitting down in Starbucks and I have to lean it against the wall. And then it, it falls over and king, king. And I'm like, hey, people, sorry, my cross fell. Um, I'll, I'll pick it up afresh. So... Just a thought, but we're going to go back in time, and I, I think I shared this with you guys already, but this is the heritage of the fool, the Christian. You see, this has always been the tension that, is, that has been there, and we're going back, you know, the 1200s, and you have one of the most intelligent men, arguably in his generation, he was the smartest man on earth, and his name was John Dunce. Okay, now recognize that last name, Dunce. Dunce today means idiot, fool, dullard. I mean, there isn't a, I mean, you, there, there's a lot of bad words for being an idiot, but Dunce ranks right up near the top. 
And yet in the 1200s, this man, John Dunce, from whom the name hails of Dunce, was considered the smartest man alive. In fact, over the entire Middle Ages, he's considered one of the top three to five most intelligent men ever. Throughout all of history, he's considered, of course not today, but was considered one of the most intelligent men. Okay, now what happened that we would literally mock people and call them dunces? I'm just hoping that in the future people aren't called ludies. Doesn't that just sound terrible? Uh, of course, that could be a compliment. If I get associated with John Dunce, this is a good story here. But John Dunce wore a hat, and it was pointy, and it's just awkward to think about. But it was a pointy hat, and it was like a finger that aimed up towards the heavens because he believed the entire infrastructure of academic learning, of all knowledge, the way to ascertain and to truly, truly utilize the human mind was to understand who created it. And so he had a, like a, a hat that pointed up like a finger to the heavenlies to point towards Jesus Christ, the one from whom all knowledge comes. And if you want to truly be an academic, if you truly want to use your mind the way God intended, you need to know him. And that was what became known as a dunce. A dunce is someone who believes in what John Dunce called the primacy of Christ, the centrality of Jesus Christ in all things. Well, that's just what the Bible teaches. It's called the preeminence of Christ. And so isn't it interesting that then when the Enlightenment era hit, and instead of having Christ at the center of the classroom, the world wanted to put man at the center of the classroom. It's called humanism. And when humanism overtook the, the world, the dunces were the greatest threats. And so they mocked them. They ridiculed the dunces and ultimately stuck them in the corner of the classroom with their hat on to mock them. Now, one of my thoughts that I've, I've had, you know, because I, I wrote a book called the, the Bold Return of the Dunces. And, you know, I've thought about, because I would never want to wear a hat, a pointy hat. I mean, that's just about as embarrassing as you could get, right? But so I've, I've thought, now, I would rather carry my three-foot cross than to wear that cap. But if it was truly a symbol of Christ, which it isn't, to be honest, no one would ever correlate the two, okay? Whereas a cross, they would. But if it was a symbol, would I be willing to wear it? And that's always a good question for all of us. Would I be willing to put on the hat, the dunce cap? in a generation, because that's what it would look like. It would look like the fool's cap. Who in their right mind would ever choose to put on the fool's cap? That's the question for every one of us as Christians. Are we willing to pick up a cross and follow Jesus? You do know where that cross leads, do you not? The Via Dolorosa leads to Calvary. It leads to death to self. However, what does that lead to? An empty tomb. Resurrection life. So the bulging left bicep is this exact concept. The strong Christian is the one who can live in Christ with boldness and a smirk on his face and no longer care what the world thinks. You have to admit, that sounds sort of fun. You see, most of us are actually sort of scared of ever going there, though. We're scared of ever becoming one of those Christians that no longer considers what the world thinks, lest we become so foolish <laughs> that we are dangerous to ourselves. However, could you imagine being free 
from the thoughts of the world, from the grades of the world, from the popularity ratings and concerns. And you could just say, Christ, I'm yours. Now, there are certain pockets of my life where that is true for me, where I have moved into certain categories of strength and boldness where it's like, look, I could say this right now. And then there's other times when I recognize I still have a whole bunch of whatever that reticence is, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to pick up that cross. I don't want to walk into that situation. I don't want to stand up, for instance, in the middle of Starbucks and say, hey, people, I just wanted to talk to you today about your soul. It's like, you don't, you don't do that in Starbucks, okay? There's an unwritten rule. I don't, you know, someone could say, where does it say you can't do that? I, it doesn't have to say it on the wall. It says it in here. We all feel it. It's a social construct. It is socially incorrect to do that. And so as a result, every single one of us kowtows. And we are quieted and stilled by the law of societal correctness. Instead of saying, I will be stilled by no law. I will speak what the Spirit of God leads me to speak. Oh, that's dangerous and extremely exciting. It's a muscular Christian. The bulging left bicep, building our lives differently. If you want a different result, don't keep doing the same thing. Well, that's a nice proverb for all of us, isn't it? Uh, this, there's a long-time story of this guy that's uh, walking down this road, and, and there's this big hole uh, in the sidewalk, and he falls into it every day. And, and he climbs out, and, uh, and every day he gets in, he's twisted his ankle, you know, he's scuffed up his cheek, you know, broke his nose, all these things. And it's just like, what is it? And so the great piece of wisdom that came to him is, you know, if you want a different result, don't keep doing the same thing. Walk on the other side of the street. And, of course, the illustration is typically assigned to those that are stumbling into sin. It's like there's probably a better path. <laughs> you don't need to keep doing the same thing. But the principle in life if you have a tendency to cower before the world, what is a different route that you could begin to walk? Introducing the English bowman. So we're talking about the bulging left bicep. This is actually a phenomenon in history. And where this came from was a Dan research project that he had. Dan gets into some of the funniest things. And then he brings them up, and I'm like, I need to know more about that. Give me everything you found on that. And that's where this came from. He was doing some study of some ship that sunk, uh, and they had found the, the ark. Well, they dug it up and, and found it that it had all these. It was a ship, an English ship, that was carrying bowmen from back in like the 12 or 1300s. And up to that point, they had only guessed at the history of the bowmen because they were legendary but almost like at a mythical level throughout history, but no one had ever been able to do any archaeological find, like, okay, show me the bow that they used, because they did, there's no way they were that big. Uh-uh. No man, no human could pull that bow. And then no one had ever been able to actually study a physical uh, skeletal structure of a bowman to see what the effect of doing that type of archery would do upon the body. And in this... They had this whole hole of the boat that was full of the bows, and it was full of the, the dead bowmen. And so they were able to do all this research on this, and as a result, out comes some of the coolest stuff. I mean, Dan McConaughey stuff that Eric Ludy's like, I want that. Okay, I want that. You give that to me. That becomes mine now. 
Uh, I mean, it, it's that good. This is, this is really good stuff. So I have to attribute it all to Dan, unfortunately. But it's good. I'm the one that's given it, though, right now, right? So I want you... Introducing the English bowman. An English bowman was not built by accident. He was built on purpose. And an English bowman in the 13 and 1400s England was their great secret of indomitable military strength, able to unleash up to 12 three-foot arrows a minute. Okay, now right now, that sounds like Legolas from Lord of the Rings. That's about, I mean, this is like 12 a minute. Okay, in fact, Legolas is a lot faster than that. But Legolas's bow is nothing compared to an English bowman's bow, okay? This is supernatural. That's the only way to describe it. If any of you have ever pulled a bow or gone bow hunting, you're going to look at what we're about to say, and you're going to be like, you can't do that. That's impossible. And you'd be partly correct. It's not normally possible unless you start from a young age for 20 years of your life, trained daily. That's how intense this is. So in other words, if you were to look at this as a parallel with Christianity and say, okay, you could show up one day and say, I want to live a grand Christian life. I want to live like Hudson Taylor. You don't just pop out of the spiritual womb one day and say, I want to be like Hudson Taylor. You take a lifetime of growth to become like that. And the same is true with the English bowman. So they were able to unleash up to 12 three-foot arrows a minute, shooting them with seemingly supernatural accuracy at lengths of up to three football fields, piercing even the most illustrious knight's armor, as well as four-foot-thick castle doors, killing guards standing on the other side. A four-foot-thick castle door? Okay, that's like ridiculous. Killing the guard on the other side. Could you imagine? It's like, I'm safe here. (laughs) I mean, this is like extraordinary stuff. The English bowmen of the 13-1400s England is still to, this, still to this day are considered by sports scientists to be one of the most amazing physical specimens of human history. They were the special forces of their day, the elite athletes of war history. It's like special forces. Doesn't this get some of the guys in here stirred up? I mean, maybe the girls do too. I've, again, I've never been a girl. I don't know what gets <laughs> girls intrigued. The building of an English bowman. So how do you build such an athlete? What is the process? To shoot an English longbow demanded a lifetime of consistent training and the cultivation of immense strength. The ability to pull weights of up to 200 pounds. So now what we're going to get to is the fact that a typical bow pull on a, on a, bow, on a bow today, like uh, for, inth- for instance, there's... A, what is it, Matthew's Bows? Uh, so there's a guy named Matt McPherson up in uh, Wisconsin that invented a bow, but it actually helps you pull it. So say it's 50 to 70 pounds that you pull, it actually has a device on it that actually helps you pull it. So what you're actually pulling might be 20, 25 pounds, okay? That's like modern-day bow hunting, okay? And that's hard. <laughs> so, and that's pulling it once, Could you imagine pulling 200 pounds 12 times in one minute? Okay, now if any of you have been an athlete and just done some bench pressing, 200 pounds of bench press is what is most, more than most men can do. Okay, and that's a press. This is a pull. And pulling is harder than pressing. 
Okay, so that's 200 pounds to push is harder, let alone to do it 12 times in one minute and then keep going the next minute. I mean, this is like staggering proportions. It's like you can't even fathom how hard this is. So to supply perspective, the typical bow today has a pull weight of around 50 to 60 pounds. To pull a six-foot-tall bow with a pull weight of 200 pounds would be considered by many today as simply impossible, let alone 12 times in one minute. For a 20-year-old boy to be prepared to shoot an English longbow, he would need to start training as a little boy. The little boy would be taught the proper form and entrusted with a miniature longbow. Isn't that cute? It's like a little miniature longbow. And this little boy would learn the art of stepping into the bow. And because it's a whole movement that you have to learn throughout your life, it is very significant. It's like a dance to the, to the ancient English. And so they would learn, and one, this little boy would learn to practice on a miniature bow. Because obviously a six-foot-tall bow, who's going to be able just to show up one day, come to that long bow and be able to pull it? You can't. So you start with a miniature. You know, this is exactly how God trains us. I mean, exactly, if you are willing. To the English, it became law that everyone had to train to be a bowman, and everyone had to do this daily. This is like law in the land, because the English knew that you could not do this unless you took it serious. So we have no law in Christianity that says, okay, you have to be a bowman. You have to train daily. At the same time, the same is true for us. If you want to grow up to be muscular and to be athletic and fit in your spiritual life, you can't be it, do this passively. You can't just hope. Like if you're trying to get in shape, you don't show up once every three weeks and say, I worked out. You may have worked out once in three weeks, but that doesn't amount to anything any more than doing your bow pole once every three weeks would make you a bowman. In other words, if you want to be an English bowman, which were the most feared in all the world, they were an unstoppable military. I mean, these are just short days after the, after the days of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And now suddenly the bow comes into being and it changes everything because these guys can stand three football fields away and destroy you. And you know that the French had no ability to mimic? The French could be like, we have to get some bows. Hey, you start practicing the bow. Well, first of all, there was no one to teach them. And secondly, could you imagine the teacher comes over from England? He goes, all right, you guys want to learn the bow. All right, it'll take 20 years. If you want to do what the English are doing, it'll be 20 years before you can do it. We'll be destroyed by then. Exactly. <laughs> In other words, it was an unstoppable military force. And I want you to catch the vision of that. When we allow God to build us the way he intends, there is actually no defense for it whatsoever. The enemy has no ability to stop, to parry the blow. So a little boy would be taught the proper form and entrusted with a miniature longbow. All throughout the boy's life, as his strength and ability increased, so would the size of his bow. And so would the distance required for him to shoot. So they would move out the target and they would increase the size of the bow. Christianity, that's how it works. You just sort of see God. I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, but it is so common for us to sort of mumble and complain when our bow gets a little bigger. It's like, God, I finally learned how to pull this one, and now it gets harder? 
And you just moved my target further out. That's like harder for me to hit. Like, yeah, we're growing you up, bud. In other words, my grace will increase to the degree of challenge that I'm giving you. I'm not giving you something greater than you're ready for. I'm giving you something that I believe you're ready to respond to. So he will always increase our bow size and he will move out our target. And he'll say, I know you can hit that now. I've given you grace for that. Do it. Daily he would need to practice for the archer's strength isn't just in his physical strength. Listen to this. It's not just in his physical strength and technique, but also in his intimate familiarity with the movements of bending the bow. There's a rhythm to it that if you miss one day, you begin to lose the rhythm. It is a rhythm to the bending of the bow that is gained only through intimate familiarity. And if he doesn't stay close and familiar with this difficult movement, he immediately loses his effectiveness as an archer. If this training was done diligently and right, the little boy would grow up with distinct deformities to his physical body. Okay, remember, I started by talking about a peculiar people. We are fools for Christ. You see, we are misshapen in the world's eyes. It's just a fact. We look funny to the world. Do you accept that? God is building a military force that is unstoppable, that will change the world with the power of love. But are you willing to be misshapen? You see, if you do this for 20 years of your life, you're going to develop a distinct deformity on your left, upper left bicep shoulder area. It'll look a little like Popeye the sailor, but it'll be weird in its location. It's like, this little like humpback type of look, but it's on your shoulder. It's like, what is wrong with that guy? You do a little vacation stop in Europe, take off your, your shirt to be on the beach, and everyone's like gawking at you going, what a weird guy that is. You're a bowman. You don't fit any, in, any, anywhere else in the world. You, you are a part of a military unit and it's very, very specialized. And everyone in that military unit recognizes that bulge in your upper left arm area. But everyone else in the world thinks you are one funny looking guy. So his left arm would show that he was in fact a bowman in training. His arm would bulge with muscular irregularity, think Popeye the Sailor Man, possibly appearing strange and misshapen to those unfamiliar with how the art of archery affects a man's body. As a result, it was obvious to all that saw the lad that he was in training and that he was being groomed for the king's service. The training of the heavenly bowmen. Heavenly bowmen are not trained by accident, but on purpose. So, I want you to apply this straight across. We're getting a principle of what sports scientists would say in history is one of the most extraordinary pictures of athleticism anyone has ever seen. It is so extreme what these men were able to do that there's hardly words to even describe it. And until the, they dug up the remains of the St. Mary and this ship, and they got these skeletal remains out and they began to study them and they saw the same irregularity in each one of the skeletons, it's like, what is that? They saw the bows and they were like, guys, I know no one's gonna believe this, but it would be a 200 pound pull for that thing. And all the sports scientists are like, that's impossible. Okay? I mean, every way you look at this, you're thinking, how in the world could they do that through training? It's amazing what you can do. I mean, Avi, 
uh, our 10-year-old is in gymnastics. And she comes back every day. She's like, I got my, she has this, there's a language in gymnastics. I got my fly away or something like that. And I'm like, oh, good. That's wonderful. I got my tuck. I got my kip. And it's like, and we have a son named Kip. So Kip's like, yeah, that's, I like that one. And she goes, it's really hard. And he's like, yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is when I watch it, I'm always amazed thinking, how does a human do that? And gymnasts make it look easy. But that's like hard to do, but you forget how hard it is when someone works every day to do it. You can actually do extraordinary things. So let that be a hint. What the human soul is built for is even more grand. It reveals the kingdom of heaven. The physical body is a shell to hold something. It's to hold a spiritual man. And that spiritual man is Christ. And you are given all the grace to grow up under the full maturity of Christ. What could that spiritual man do if it was fed well, if it was exercised with vigor? with intentionality instead of accidental exercise. It's like, oh, I, I guess we could count that little walk to the mailbox as a little exercise today. No, no, where you purposely set out to train the spiritual man. You catching the vision? It's like what happens is you have an English bowman on your hands. So a young bowman must be trained often and consistently. You you're not a parent, but if you were, if you're training your children this way, you as a parent must accept the fact that your little bowman or bow girl will look funny to the world as a result of this intensive training. You must realize that he or she is being trained to present his or her life under the king's military service and that they likely will die in combat. And you mustn't listen to the overtures of the world around you that will naysay this intensive training. See, everything about what I'm saying presses against some unspoken rule. You see, you can train for the Olympics, and it's applauded. But to train with vigor for spiritual health, spiritual vitality, and spiritual form and strength, it's frowned upon. By who? Who's frowning upon that? It's hard to say who the they is in this situation. You ever tried to pin down who they is? But they are out there. And what do they call it? They call it legalism. Oh, that's legalism. You put that much effort into your Christianity, that must be legalism. No, no. Legalism is self-effort. Self-attempting to do what only God can do. That is legalism. Christianity is the Spirit of God doing what the Spirit of God desires to do in and through a body. That's Christianity. It's very different. And discipline does not need to be legalism. It could actually be obedience. And so the Spirit of God desires to grow us up unto a full maturity. So as a platform idea today, what I want us to just take away as a nugget is this idea, first, are we willing to look funny to the world around us? Okay, it's just a question, and I just want you to allow it to sit in your soul. Okay, I've dealt with this question for many years. I remember feeling the pressing in the small of my back for God to use my life and to use my voice. And I have, you know, some people have a, you know, a sense of humor, a sense of style. Uh, there, there's, uh, trying to think of another sense. What's another sense? A, a sense of, 
we could call it a sense of audience where you know what people think. I have that. I know what people think, and that, that might scare you. Uh, but I do know when people are uncomfortable with things I'm saying and with things I'm doing. I can read people very well. I don't know if other people can. I can. Okay, so I can read a room. I can read an audience. I've stood in front of many hostile audiences, and I know very well that they do not want to be there. And I can feel it. And so the challenge for me has been when God is pushing me forward to speak in situations where I'm sensing that I'm not wanted or that they don't want something I'm going to say, but God wants me to say something, what do I do? And so it's this tension in between these. Would I, I, I would rather seek their approval. I used to be the ultimate people pleaser. Everyone liked me in high school. Everyone liked me in college. I was popular. In Christ, not so much. In other words, I have a whole bunch of people that hate me now. And I don't particularly like that. I'm not drawn to that. But am I willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to be popular in heaven, if you could say it that way, where when you arrive in heaven, everyone's on their feet cheering, like, yeah. Meanwhile, down here, like, boo, get them out of here. That's not very fun, okay? When, you, when everyone on the earth wants you dead, that's not a fun feeling. It's not a warm tingle. Which one? And for each of us, we need to recognize that to be in Christ means to be in Christ. And Christ was a worm and no man. He was despised and rejected of the people. Do we recognize what it means to be in him? Are we willing to share in his reputation? Are we willing to go where he goes? Are we willing to follow him where he would lead? Okay, so that's one thing. The second one is are we willing to catch the vision for a vigorous version of Christianity? See, it's one thing. I mean, there's some of you that are stirred, but then there's a lot of reason that will just sort of pile on top, push it back down. It's like, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And so some of these things, sometimes you have to hit it and hit it and hit it and hit it. For me, I've, I've already said yes to God that I want the vigorous version, okay? And I've lived seasons of my life with vigorous versions of Christianity that will sort of wane over time. It's like a, a vigorous workout routine that you have for like six months of your life and you're in really good shape. You're even drinking like kale uh, smoothies, okay? You're really doing it well, right? And then something interrupts it. It's a family trip or something and you take a break for a little bit and then the next thing you know... You are looking at this vigorous version. It's like, oh, yeah, I need to get back into that. Okay, it's very easy to lose the momentum. And so right now, I'm not necessarily saying, I want you just to charge out of here and get a kale smoothie spiritually. As much as I want you to disposition your soul to say, God, I want the real thing. I want muscular, athletic Christianity, and I don't want the flabby version. God, I don't know what that means, but I ask that your Holy Spirit would teach me. Does that sound like a, a fairly good goal for today instead of just feeling guilty that you're not drinking your kale smoothies spiritually by tonight? Uh, in other words, sometimes it takes a readiness period for God to sort of set out a new pattern and we step in, we step in, we step in. And God begins to move us forward. Every great journey starts with small steps, not with big lunges. 
if you were going to run five miles and you sprinted the first mile, you probably wouldn't run the other four. And many of us as Christians do that. We come out of the gate with such vigor and energy that we end up fading along the stretch instead of saying, God, I want you to give me the first step and I'll take it, okay? I want the next step. I remember saying to uh, Aaron Vogel, if you ever see us in the mornings working out, uh, Aaron Vogel has a training system, it's called In the Core, and it's, it's like CrossFit, but if you mention CrossFit to Aaron Vogel, he'll get all upset, you know, that's based in evolution, you know, the guy that created is an atheist, and uh, whereas In the Core, of course, is based on Christ, In the Core, In Christ, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a great training method, so if you ever get a chance to train in that, it's, it's wonderful, but I remember coming to Aaron, it's a scary moment. Okay, and he works you hard. I mean, when you, I mean, the very first few times I worked out with him, I was like ready to throw up. I couldn't even drive home. I had to have someone else drive me home. I was so weak. Okay, I mean, it was intense. Okay, that's how, that wasn't a sales pitch, was it? Uh, I was trying to, <laughs> trying to get you guys into this, and that didn't work. Uh, but, you know, in the process, I remember coming up to him. It was a key moment. And I said, I'm scared to say this, but... I'm ready for you to push me harder. Now, who in their right mind would say that to an athletic trainer? Right? Who in their right mind would ever say that to the Holy Spirit? Okay, you following me? This is what I want to put a seed, plant a seed in there to say, I want you, instead of trying to come up with excuses for why you don't need to work out spiritually, it's like how, why you can sleep in a little longer today and miss your workout and just maybe make it up next week. That type of thinking doesn't get you into English Bowman territory. You want to move in the right direction, you have to think audaciously. You have to get uncomfortable and say, God, I need to be pushed. I need you to stretch me. I'm scared to bring this up to you as if he's shocked. He's like, oh, well, really? He's the one doing it inside of you. He's the one saying, I want to bring you a little further. And then you're like, I want to be brought a little further. He's like, I would like to push you. And I'm like, I really want to be pushed. It's initiated by him. You're simply giving voice to what the Spirit of God is cultivating within you. All right? So that's the sort of prayer I want to ask for all of us right now. And you're probably going to be like, don't, don't pray on my behalf. I'm going to pray on your behalf right now. <laughs> Father, I ask that you would take us deeper, onward, upward, do not let us stagnate here. Lord, I pray that you would take us by the hand and invite us into the depths. Lord, that you would train us. You would, be, you would bring us into a greater vigor of spiritual cultivation, a greater vigor in our prayer life, a greater vigor in our study life, a greater vigor in our communications with others and our sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you receive the glory that is due your name. We love you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.